And if we are going to be people of peace, as Gandhi once said, you cannot bring world peace if you are not first and foremost a person of peace. And so imagine that you're looking at yourself in the mirror or maybe even just where you're sitting, just look at your hands or your body and speak words of affirmation to yourself. This does not mean that you think you've got it all together. This does not mean that you think you are perfect. This means that there are certain parts of your being that are gifts and you need to accept them. And so say to yourself, may I be whole, may I be safe, may I have joy, and may I have peace. May I be whole, may I be safe, may I have joy, and may I have peace. Next, I want you to think of someone or a group of people that you love. And particularly this week within our cultural chaos, I want you to think of people who you're familiar with, who are like you, who, who seem accessible in the kind of life you live, in the kind of places that you live, your tribe. This could be your family, this could be your friends, this could be your community. And say to them, may you be whole, may you be safe, may you have joy, and may you have peace. Feel free to say that out loud if it is helpful for you. May you be whole. May you be safe, may you have joy, and may you have peace. Now I want you to imagine a different group of people. And this could, as we do when we normally have this meditation, this could be somebody you consider an enemy, somebody who has caused you problems, somebody who you just think of and it takes up your headspace. But I'd also challenge you within our, our current cultural climate to consider a group of people now that is different from you. One that you may fear, a group that you are frustrated with, or simply a group of people that does not exist or look like you. And I want you to do what may be a difficult thing, but should not be, of simply looking at them and asking for the same affirmations that you agree are part of the gift of your life to be shared with them. Just as you have been given this breath, so have they. But particularly those in our, in our culture and in our country who are experiencing unease, fear. Speak now this gift to them. May you be whole. May you be safe. May you have joy. And may you have peace.
imagine that person or that group standing right in front of you and say this to them, may you be whole, may you be safe, may you have joy, and may you have peace. The table with which we sit at invites everyone because we are all sharers in the same gift. If it's true of you, it's true of them. And are you able to start there? But now to continue what Gandhi said, world peace, it begins with you. It begins with the peace amongst us here, right in our context, but it transcends just that and it goes out to infect every single part of the world. And let's be honest right now, we need that peace. We need that wholeness, that goodness, that truth, that beauty of how God created this world to be. That shalom. And my hope is that we can all be people who wish this on every single thing within our universe. And so imagine before you the whole world, all of it, all of creation, all people standing together as one. And let's say this for ourselves. May we be whole. May we be safe. May we have joy. And may we have peace. And the reality this should cause you to confront is that if we all don't have these things together, if we all do not have health, none of us do. And any lack of wholeness or safety or joy or peace, it will trace its way back to you eventually. If this is going to be the way your life works and the people you love and the people around you, it's gotta be true of everyone. We will flourish or we will experience demise together. So let's say this one more time. May we be whole. May we be safe. May we have joy. And may we have peace. All right, we're here at the barn. It's a bit quiet today and I'm looking forward to when it is not not so quiet um, but I am glad that you all are with us and I'm excited for this conversation um, my father this morning asked so what uh, what are you guys talking about today and I said uh, lamentations and he said all right so you guys are gonna get laminated and I had no clue what that meant um, but yes, I think today we are going to get laminated. So we're going to dive into this conversation, and um, this is going to be juxtaposed, as Amy just said, with what we have done this morning so far. But I hope this conversation uh, finds root in what we've been exploring and uh, if you have not been able to keep up with the content so far on theodicy, that stuff is going to be helpful, um, especially the guiding parent uh, parable that we use to explain uh, theodicy uh, over the past couple weeks. But what is going to happen now is we've dealt with the theoretical side, and uh, we should be concerned about having theoretical satisfaction because that is important and it's a natural part of the process for anyone who suffers. 
But you can have healing. Remember, our goal is healing. And you can have healing without any theory. It's less likely, but you can do it. Having healing without practical satisfaction is nearly impossible. And so having a tactile, pragmatic approach to literally bring out healing, not just us understanding it, is going to be important. So, so far, we've talked about understanding uh, suffering and healing and all of these things that come up in our minds. It's very abstract. We're going to get away from that now. So you kind of think of that. That's our hardware. Um, Now we actually need to have uh, the software to run the program. A a computer hardware by itself, not not all that great. Now we actually need to use it. So that's what we're going to get into. And the question that I'm going to start with is what are the actions that result from this theory? And I think biblically, the best example of that is in Lamentations. Um, now, Amy, you, you're not, you still haven't been convinced that Lamentations is amazing and great and perfect. I do not think it is amazing and great and perfect. I don't know how many of you uh, got a chance to read Lamentations, but I would say that even for a veteran Bible digger in like me, I found it a difficult and disruptive book to read. And no matter how different ways I turned it, I still found it complicated to look at. And mm-hmm. yet I can see that there's a good reason to, to do that because okay. you've got to face the truth. I think it's important to look the truth in her eye sometimes. And I would say that if one thing you can say about Lamentations is it definitely does that. It doesn't varnish things at all. It looks it right in the eye. Okay. Um, and, and what would you say is difficult about Lamentations? It's a different view of God than we like mm. to think of. Um, you know, we always want to read the pretty parts of the Bible and the nice parts, and we like to think of God as this merciful being who helps us. And in Lamentations, it seems very uh, complicated, almost abusive, angry, violent, ruthless being that you just want to flee and hide from. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like I said, accept that. You have to dig below that in order to understand what's going on, because otherwise, if that was the first thing you ever read in the Bible, you would probably throw that book down and say, never again. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Yeah. So I'm interested to see how this ends up today okay. with us. Now, uh, ho- hopefully some of you did get a chance to uh, read the text. And um, I, I do think it's important. I will also be really honest in saying... If all you ever did was read this text without diving into it, you're going to be left with a ton of problems, Um, especially going like, why is this in the Bible? This does not make sense. And I would, if you had that thought, um, you're right at home. Most people do. And um, it's why I said last week that this text requires a very diligent, intentional interaction. You cannot just leave this one. Um, Unfortunately, though, I think that's what's happened. So I've heard a lot of pastors, theologians, religious scholars try to handle the conversation of suffering and theodicy that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have, I have yet to really see somebody use lamentations. Now, there's been a couple of examples of, of people that I've seen do it, but not usually the, the popular uh, mainstream voices. Right. Um, so we don't hear it brought up frequently, um, not even in theodicy conversations. And 
I think the reason that it's often ignored is the same reason that much of Christendom is biblically illiterate. Right. We want, as you're saying, and we, we want not only the, the nice, neat portrayals of things. Um, we also want the soundbite. We right. want the thing that we can just digest easily. We don't want to have to go on a journey with the text and with our tradition. Um, and one of the things that I, I, I find troubling about this, so like think of, you know, people have like those study Bibles where they have a section that says, you know, when you're feeling this way, turn to here's this chapter and verse and that'll give you the answer. Right. You know, you're not likely to see like when you're in existential angst and you're suffering deeply and you're hurt, turn to Lamentations. You're this not, is not a Facebook meme. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, the, no it's, it's not, that's not usually a, uh, a, a, a way we interact with it. But, you know, those of you who have been around uh, me enough know, like, I think the Bible is really difficult. I think it's really complex. And I think it, it deserves your utmost attention and engagement. If we make the Bible easy, we are either going to ignore the parts that are the most beneficial, like Lamentations, or uh, we are going to end up with a very weak and surface level perspective that's not going to be helpful. I think both of those have happened with this book. Um, but I, I would say that we need this book. And so you're likely to find people who don't even know Lamentations exist, which is unfortunate, it's a little oh, bit sure. sad. Um, or you'll find people who don't feel Lamentations is necessary, um, which I find troubling. Um, or you'll find people who say it doesn't actually answer the questions. It, it, Lamentations is unhelpful and it's disconcerting and it's that one that I want to confront. Okay. All right. And hopefully that will also uh, confront the other ones as well. So um, what is Lamentations about? Uh, Lamentations is a book of poems about God's presence and character in the midst of suffering. So what we're going to find in Lamentations is a very complex landscape, and it's gonna have philosophical components to it, so the theodicy question, but it's also gonna have some psychological implications for suffering. And what Amy brought up is you're gonna get very counterintuitive imagery here. And you know it's gonna require that diligent and very patient approach so don't go in expecting easy answers to this. Um, expect a process. And if you dare venture with us into Lamentations, you're going to get a messy picture. You're also going to get a very honest picture that makes suffering well possible. And a phrase that we use around here sometimes is, real is not always glamorous, but real is always beautiful. Lamentations is one of the most real books you get. And so it won't be glamorous. It's yeah, going to be I awesome, agree. though. Um, all right. So what we're looking for here is, is there restorative healing that can be found on this landscape called Lamentations that we'd prefer to leave uncharted? Um, well, what can we find? So we're going to dive into what I would call an oceanic abyss. And I think the eerie water of Lamentations is beckoning us to suffer well. Um, so... What part of Lamentations, uh, you know, we can kind of survey it, but there's the setting, there's the literary structure. Where should we start? 
I think people probably, first of all, might want to know the historical context, if you cover that real quick at least, so that people understand maybe why um, why, the, why those Israelite people wrote this down and why they thought it was important to keep it. All right. Um, so there is generally an ancient Near Eastern uh, literary genre called lament. Okay, so you find laments in the Psalms. Okay. There are Psalms of lament, if you're familiar with the Psalms. Um, but there's a whole genre within that, uh, like, Bronze Age, Iron Age era of various laments. And we still have access to some, especially laments from Babylon. Um, and if you're interested, I actually have a couple copies of different ones that uh, I, could, I could show you. And it's really interesting to read these because you go like, oh, the, the Hebrews are actually using... This is a normal form of literature. Of right? course I would be interested in yeah, seeing I know this. you would. <laughs> uh, but so you get these poetic, lyrical arrangements that are responding to some sort of devastation. And, and all of these have this bend towards hope for renewal. Um, and so we got to see that these are typical of the region. However, the Book of Lamentations in the Bible is different from most of the other laments that we have access to, that we know about. Um, and the biggest, and this is actually something that's true of a lot of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, if, if any of you are comic book fans, this is something called a retcon, R-E-T-C-O-N. And a retcon is where uh, you take a, a standard form and you kind of replicate it, but then you change one detail or, or a, a one image. Okay. And it changes the meaning. So hmm. you're you're used, you're working with uh, very normal ideas like yep we've heard this before. So imagine taking um, like a, like a popular quote in our culture, but you change one word that oh, changes the meaning. Oh, that's interesting. That's a retcon. You actually mm -hmm. see that within the Bible a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, so Genesis one, that's your first example. Uh, the flood narrative. It's another example. It's the same with Lamentations. Um, and the, re the thing that's the most different is that typical laments uh, were written after that tribe or city or whatever devastation happened had been fixed. Right. And the deity that they're talking to is actually the one helping them speak. And so it's after like things have gotten better and they're thanking the deity as a way to sort of win, uh, win approval and move things forward. Okay, sure. Not so in the book of Lamentations. I'll say. <laughs> yeah. Lamentations is written in the midst of Israel's suffering with God apparently being absent. So this is where it's different from that context. And, and that's what then, if we know that they're using the same kind of pattern, we got to go, okay, so then what does that have to show us? Um, it, it kind of invites us to focus on that. So Lamentations is written as a result of the destruction of Jerusalem. And, and we know historically that this happened. Um, and the uh, prophetic book of Jeremiah is written kind of about the same context. Some people even think that Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations. But when Jerusalem gets destroyed, that's not just a physical destruction. That's a collapse of their physical livelihood. It's also the destruction of their identity and the collapse of their emotional, spiritual universe as well. So Lamentations is a book, and if you read it, you know this. This is about pain and fury and despair of loss. So I look at this and I go, 
suffering is about loss. How do we deal mm-hmm. with loss? Well, right. Lamentations is written about that. Here we go. Um, so that's, that's kind of the context of it. And that's important to know as you're entering into that. The, uh, the other thing that I find fascinating about Lamentations, and, and today this kind of uh, sort of introduction to the book, and we'll get into some content here in a moment, um, the literary background yeah, is... Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And, and you won't know it if you mm-hmm. read it in English. That's the right? problem. So this is an example of like Lamentations is written in Hebrew. There's things going on that once you see those, it helps you kind of figure out um, what's happening. So what are, what are the parts of the literary style that you find most important? I think what's interesting about it is the way that... The writers were writing about a terrible, chaotic, unbelievably disruptive event, and they put it into a very formal style. It's like, and they, and the way um, Kathleen O'Connor is a woman who wrote a book about it, a theologian who wrote a book about the Book of Lamentations, and she talks about how it's they take each letter in the Hebrew alphabet and they write kind of a verse along with mm-hmm. it in a, what they call an acrostic style. Yeah. And it's almost as if she's saying they're encompassing, they're suffering from A to Z. There is nothing more we can say. Yeah. So I thought that was also very interesting. But to my mind, it's almost like kind of a musical thing where you might have some kind of complicated thing like a banjo roll going underneath it. And over the top of it, you have this very formal, perhaps like a drone note or a harmony. And that's the way it sounds to me. Mm-hmm. So you have this chaotic subject with a very structured and formal um, uh, frame around it. Yeah, and uh, you got to imagine using our alphabet, like stanza one is starts with A, stanza right. two starts with B, stanza three starts with C, and it does that. And that, when you when you hear that, you find out that's what they're doing in Hebrew. You're like, this has nothing to do mm-hmm. with the content. The yeah. content is chaos, but it's written in this very strict order. And those two things sit right side by mm-hmm. side. I, I actually wanted to read this quote from Kathleen O'Connor about um, the poetic form. She says, the alphabet gives both order and shape to suffering that is otherwise inherently chaotic, formless, and out of control. It signifies the enormity of suffering as a vast universe of pain extending from A to Z to which nothing more can be added. It implies that suffering is infinite, for it spans the basic components of written language from beginning to end. That was really powerful. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so that's what's going on with the poetic structure. There's also another component to the poetry in the form that it uses. So in Hebrew, this is actually a form called kinah, Q-I-N-A-H, kinah. And literally it means limping meter. And so you get three long beats, so like beat, 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 and then two short ones, beat, beat. And so the whole poem's written with like this and this and this, 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 this and this and this, this, this. And it's the image of limping. Mm-hmm. So as all of these characters are speaking. These guys were geniuses. Yeah. The characters yeah. are speaking. It's like they're speaking with a limp. Mm-hmm. They're speaking with the suffering as the mode of their voice. Um, and I find that, like, that's just amazing. Um, but the other part, part to understand is the characters, right? So right. these are five different poems. Mm-hmm. And throughout the poems, we get four main characters. 
Uh, so you get uh, daughter Zion, who's actually a representation of Israel as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. You get a passerby, referenced briefly. You get uh, what we would call a strong man. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the Hebrew word geber, um, but like a strong man. So think like military warrior uh, or like think like world's strongest man competition, that guy. Okay. Okay, so that's that character. Mm-hmm. And then the other character you get is a narrator, um, which we would think, is that a character in... Or is the outside, and what's interesting is the narrator becomes a character. Yeah, so the narrator of, was probably the most interesting character yeah, if you look at it. Absolutely, from a literary point of view. So, like so uh, what they do with the narrator slowly becoming a character is really fascinating. Um, but so throughout throughout all of these uh, characters, they m- make all of these speeches, and that creates the poems. Um, and occasionally, they do interact. So that's kind of the setting. For lamentation. So, uh, what I wanted to do, and maybe you have a better way to do this, is for anyone who didn't read, I could offer a brief survey of the content. Sure, I think that would be a good thing to do. All right, so I'm just going to walk you through a very simple overview of the contents that will, if, if you're not familiar with the book, will help us get into the actual content of it. So, the, the book as a whole is quite short. It's only five chapters long, so you could very well read it in a sitting. And um, if you do read this, you're struck with how much of a theological enigma Lamentations is. Um, you're likely to be startled by some imagery. Uh, Lamentations does not hold back. And what you're seeing is these poems that peer into the wounds and raise fierce questions about God. Yet I think the poems are also portraying a counterintuitive process of healing and compassion. So here's a brief rundown of what happens in each of the five poems. The first poem, which is chapter one, it centers on a woman referred to as Daughter Zion, who's a symbolic portrayal of Jerusalem. Um, And this is in the form of a female character, which is interesting. And she's asking God to see her pain and pay attention. She remarks to a passerby that she is ignored and that there is no pain like her pain. Various speeches are given concerning her destruction, which she needs someone to see, and nobody is able. So that's chapter one. The second poem, chapter two, is what Kathleen O'Connor calls an angry storm of accelerated fury directed at God. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And just remember, this is in the Bible. Now, previously in chapter one, the narrator functioned as objective observer, simply reporting the situation. Now what happens in chapter two, the narrator seems unable to be restrained and they're concentrating on the woman's suffering. And eventually the narrator begins, instead of just like reporting the facts, it's like the narrator's had enough and puts down the microphone and actually goes and joins the woman and charges God with wrongdoing, claiming that God's behavior is reprehensibly out of control. Then the narrator poignantly speaks directly to the woman, absolving her of blame. And this is a really important part that you might not catch. Absolves the woman of blame for this by calling her a virgin. And uh, what that does is it releases her of responsibility for her suffering. Also important in chapter two, never does the narrator speak for the woman, only to her. 
And finally, the, the narrator fulfills the wish of daughter Zion in chapter one, because we're told the narrator sees the woman suffering, which is what the woman was asking for somebody to see her suffering. Uh, the third poem, chapter three, offers the only words of hope in the book, this time by the strong man. Yet the strong man's words never arrive at a hopeful resolution. And this cycle of suffering, despair, and possibility of God's faithfulness just keeps circling again and again. And you get this tension of divine rejection with divine mercy. Concretely in chapter 3, uh, verse 33, you actually get a portrayal of theodicy where the strong man says, God does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of humans. So that's, a, that's one part where it seems to get theoretical. However, the strong man still yearns for God to see. Uh, and O'Connor writes about this chapter, hope is one experience in the interlude of tragedy, one fragile interpretation among others. Because in chapter three, the hope, it never turns to praise. And the cries are not resolved, and the despair continues. So then this goes into the fourth and fifth poems. Um, so chapters four and five, respectively. And it continues with similar content to the first two poems. However, what's interesting about these two, chapter four and five, is they diminish in tone, structure, and length. So they start getting shorter, almost like a sense of exhaustion um, in these poems, the suffering is kind of toured. They allude to this imagination of healing. Uh, but the placement of the poem's imagery after the short words of hope, along with how these poems, they diminish and, and they, they kind of move into exhaustion, leaves us with the book concluding with despair. It doesn't mm -hmm. end on a happy note. Um, and the characters are all yearning for God to see them. And then the book ends with this existential plea that God would witness and renew them. But that's juxtaposed with an onyx acceptance, which is the last line of the book that God probably won't. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how it ends. Yeah. So that's Lamentations kind of wrapped up. Um, and I think if you just listen to that or you've read it, you end and you go, I thought you said <laughs> this was supposed to help. That doesn't sound very helpful. So, right. so how how do you how how do you begin interacting with this? Well, to me, when I read it, it reminds me of kind of the trajectory that sometimes goes along with sorrow and loss. So you start out almost feeling outside of yourself. And that, to me, mm -hmm. starts with the narrator. He just talks in the third person, how helpless is the city there she sits by herself alone. Yeah. And it's almost that sense of disembodiment that you feel. And then you crash into this terrible howling, which is what the daughter Zion does. you know. And then you sort of start to hope, despite yourself, think maybe this is going to be okay after all. But then yeah. you kind of get that sense of despair. And I would also point out the fact that sometimes it's also the trajectory that that the people with you take, where everyone kind of comes upon you at first to help you to do the thing, and then suddenly you're sort of left to yourself as everybody disperses, mm -hmm. and you're just kind of left sitting there going, yeah, but this isn't done for me. Yeah. And everybody else is like, well, we're done with you now, and you're not. Right. Yeah, your suffering lingers, mm -hmm. and nobody else lingers with yeah, you. right. Yeah. Um, I think when we ask that question, how is this supposed to help? Like, that sounds terrible. I think if you have suffered seriously, you actually find yourself reading this going, that's exactly what it's like. Yeah. 
so if you go in going like, hopefully this will fix it, it, it won't. No. If you find, if you enter into lamentations going, yeah, no, that nails it. That that's about what it's like. Mm-hmm. Now you actually have solidarity. Yeah, it's almost like you have that voice that you need to hear. Mm-hmm. And so, but further, what we have to see is you know, hidden within the artistic content, right? There's this stunning existential and philosophical conception. Mm-hmm. And that offers us tools. And upon first read, you might not find the tools, but there are tools embedded in this text that actually uh, help propose healing. So it starts with existential acknowledgement. Like right. if you find yourself going, I don't know what to do. I feel paralyzed. Yep. Lamentation goes, you're in the right spot. Mm-hmm. That's how it should be. You're, you're being real. You're being honest. Right. Um, and then it, it also brings up the philosophical questions about God, about humans, about suffering, which is part of the process that we need. But then it also offers tools. And this is where I'm going. Like lamentations should be the book. This should be the thing we use to find healing within suffering. Um, so we catch a couple of glimpses of these practices. And, you know, we, especially using the, the guiding parent theodicy, that parable mm-hmm. we did last week. Right. You know, I think Lamentations does, despite what it sounds like, achieve an, what's called an, an ontological perspective about God and is also psychologically coherent in engaging with suffering. I think that happens. But we also catch these glimpses of practices that can heal suffering. Um, so I want to look what we're going to, I want to start today looking at one of the practices. Next week, we'll talk about both practices that are main uh, components of the book. And then the final week, July 5th, we're going to look at how uh, God is depicted in the book. Because I, I think if your first assumption is to go, and it's fair to go, why is God absent? Mm-hmm. I would say, think a little bit deeper about that. And actually, what we're shown about God, that's actually the answer. Yeah. Um, so the most surprising, powerful thing we're going to say for week three. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually got a, a question here. Um, is there any parallel with Job here? It almost seems the opposite with Job's friends coming along and fighting against Job's laments, whereas in Lamentations, the characters come alongside. Um, yeah, I, I actually am not a huge fan of Job, uh, and that's just my personal, my personal preference. One thing that's interesting about Job, if you remember what I was talking about with uh, Eli Weisel's um, play, that he wrote in response to the Holocaust. His, uh, Weisel's play was actually written kind of to parallel Job. And what happens with Job's friends is Job's friends come in and go like, here's the answers, here's what you should do. This is how we can make sense of this. And by the end, all of those, um, all of those proposals are rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the important things to see about Job that's similar to Lamentations, at least, is that uh, Job refuses to give easy answers. Yeah. And uh, Job doesn't look for um, our sort of immediate visceral response to suffering to kind of name what's happening and be indignant about the world. Um, it, it pushes further. And that's one thing that I think is, is important. Another similarity um, from Job in Lamentations 
is that you have to ask in Job, how is Job's suffering presented? Why does it happen? And that answer is given within the first chapter. Um, in, in fact, the majority of Job is um, these conversations happening between friends and Job and God and mm-hmm. kind of going back and forth. And it's very dense. It's, it's a long book. But in the first chapter alone, you get this picture that is uh, disturbing. Right. Um, like we're just pawns in this world. So Job is actually the first book, at least uh, chronologically, where the word Satan comes up. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm debating on whether I should give this answer or if I should make people figure it out for themselves. But in going, what does Job say about why Job's suffering has happened? Uh, <laughs> when you asked that question that one time, I thought it was like one of these rabbi, almost like a wink or a joke. And so, <laughs> yeah. So this is a serious question. What does it, it say? Is. All right. Um, basically, the picture is that. God and Satan make a bet. Yeah. They make a bet to see how Job will respond. And I, the way I read it, and this is, again, my personal opinion, I, absolutely there are other arguments for different interpretations of this, but I see the author of Job sort of winking when okay. he says this to say, if you think the reason that Job lost all of his family and stuff and livelihood is because God and Satan made a bet, yeah, yeah. you're out of your mind. <laughs> It's the, almost that absurdity that Jesus will sometimes use when he tells yes, a parable. He yes. recognizes a parable the, because something in the, it is so absurd. The, the surface answer is absurd, mm-hmm. and it kind of makes you go, and this is where I go, this is similar to Lamentations. There's no reason for this. Yeah, it, it, It's to, to try to put that kind of theodicy on it, it's rubbish. And so then the author goes for 39 more chapters mm-hmm. to say, and here's why it's rubbish. Right. Um, that's my interpretation. You can certainly disagree uh, with that. But I, but to to what uh, the comment said, I I don't know that uh, Job's friends are coming alongside of Job. They seem no. to be at odds mm-hmm. throughout the book. So I think that's a little bit different uh, than Lamentations. Yeah, I would say so. that it's almost like in in Job they have all these voices telling him what he ought to do. Yeah. Well, you need to do this. You need to do that. Which you don't hear in Lamentations at all. Yeah. Okay, so I want to introduce the first practice that we're shown. Okay. Um, and we're just going to introduce it, and then uh, next week we'll unpack it more and then bring up the second practice. But the first practice that we get from Lamentations is voice. Okay. Um, and here's two things we have to wrestle with here. First is that in Lamentations, there's no single voice. There mm-hmm. is a multiplicity of voices. And, and they're all interacting. And, and one thing that's remarked about this is that uh, there's no single theory, there's no single explanation, there's no single theology to explain suffering. You have to have this plurality of voices who are all coming at, at it with different angles. And that's mm-hmm. what you get in Lamentations. Um, but one thing that Ka- Kathleen O'Connor remarks about is that the, the multiple voices creates a hollowed ground because nothing can summarize their pain. So you get this cacophony of expressions Mm -hmm. and that's important. Okay. Mm -hmm. The other thing with voice is that in the entire book of Lamentations, there is no voice of God, right? God never speaks in the poem or in any of the poems. There's no big transcendent voice that comes in to resolve the problems. 
and it just lets it stay. It's almost like you're expecting it. It never happens. Yes. And the whole thing's calling for that voice. Right. That's what's interesting yeah. is they're constantly going like, come on, speak, yeah. take care of this, resolve it. And it's, and, and you never get it. And that's the, that's the disconcerting part of mm-hmm. lamentations is you go, then what kind of God is this? And, and, uh, I actually, I think we tend to go to a negative answer in that. Mm-hmm. And I actually think it's the opposite that is true. What kind of God is this uh, where you don't get that single resolving uh, voice? And what uh, O'Connor um, says is that, yes, that is unsettling, but it's also necessary. And uh, to quote her, even one word from God would take up too much space in the intention of this book. It's like she summed it all up. Yeah. That was just a genius line, I thought. We, yeah. we, we want to go like, mm-hmm. what kind of God wouldn't enter into their situation? Which week three, we're going to find out that that might not be even the case. Right. Uh, but what kind of God wouldn't speak? And I think the picture we're actually given of Lamentations is the God that understands that if God speaks, then we're not going to heal. Yeah. And that still, that needs unpacked. But so you, you don't get a single voice to resolve all of this. And instead you get these multiple voices who are speaking what is unspeakable and expressing that in incomplete ways. You have those two problems with voice. And so what we have to figure out is uh, what does this portrayal of voice, the absence of God's voice and the multiplicity of the character's voices, how, how do, what does that have to show us for how we heal. And particularly next week, we will answer the question, why can't God speak in this poem? And I would phrase it that way. God can't. Right. If God speaks, we never heal. Why? And so we will jump into that next week and we'll talk about the second practice that also comes up with this. Um, And then the last week, we will see if we can find God in Lamentations. I don't know. It'll be a fun journey. Um, But before we go, I wanted to take any questions or thoughts from you all, if there's anything we can clear up, because next week I want to jump right into these practices. So anything that you all found that you want to uh, ask a question about or see if we can elaborate on something that didn't make sense? Um, Or do you have any ideas or thoughts that can add to the discussion? And you can use the the chat feature here, um, or you can go ahead and use your voice, because that's one of the practices. Amy, if they're going to be quiet, is there anything that you think deserves more um, focus? Um, just a couple of thoughts about it as I was reading the book. One of the other things that I remember reading um, in the book by Kathleen O'Connor, she tells a story of a woman named Bell Hook who is a feminist and an activist, and she has a conversation with her mother. Yes, and um, you notice how Bell Hook's name is spelled. Yes, with lowercase letters. Yep, she refused to write her name in uppercase letters, even though she is a very accomplished author. Oh, yes, she is. Uh, because the society around her would not respect her 
her identity and personhood. And so she said, I might as well write my name the way everybody wants me to be yeah. as a black woman without mm-hmm. a, without a full name. So yeah. she wrote her name in lowercase she letters. She always writes in lowercase letters. Yeah. And, and, you know, we talk about it being a book though. you look the truth in the ugly eye. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she did is she, she called her mother and she said, you know, my dad, ne- dad never loved me. And at first her mother's like, oh, of course he did. And then finally when she says, yeah, you know what? I don't think he ever did. And it was kind of like just having that affirmation was important to her. Yeah. So I think one of the things Lamentation says is help us look that truth. It's like you, you cannot heal until you look the truth in the eye. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I would say about it is that it perhaps creates kind of a ritual space in a kind of a literary way we always need that space in which to allow our emotions to be messy and maybe that can be one of the messiness things about it is the fact that within that space you can do that howling and that crying out and that raising fists and saying you know this where are you god why are you not listening which to is me? a and biblical a, tradition absolutely you and, know you know the, the the confession that we read um the line that we use is actually from isaiah 64 which says, God, tear open the heavens and come down. Yeah. You know, there's this very large tradition of crying out mm-hmm. in the Psalms, in the prophets. Um, you could even make a case that Jesus does this. Oh, absolutely. Um, during the crucifixion, crying out's a part of it. Mm-hmm. And, and if you remember, we do this in Advent every year where we have a moment of crying out and we watch that yeah. video of Harry Daniels screaming mm-hmm. um, in silence. And it lasts like three minutes long and it's so uncomfortable. And I'll watch people as we show that video. Yeah. And I'll watch people like anxiously kind of like look away and they, they can't deal with Is it. Is he done yet? Right. And, and it's, mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable. Right. Um, and yet that process is so important mm-hmm. in speaking truth and actually paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. And of course, as humans, we don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. We don't want to pay attention to it. We don't want to feel it. We look for the easy answers. And shame on Christians who give those easy answers because you are stealing the opportunity for somebody to heal. They need that. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the things that maybe a way we could articulate what's happening with voice and with this tradition of crying out, you know, it's all over the text, is that you need a voice that comes alongside you that goes like, everything is going to be okay, but right now it's not. Yeah. And that's part of the journey. That's what you have to do. Right now it's not. And mm-hmm. we want to enter in and go, just say, everything's going to be okay. Sure. But if you've suffered deeply and you have somebody say, it's fine, you're good. Or, or even worse, like God's got you. God's oh, in control. Right. Yeah, that might be true. It might be. But in that moment, the last thing you need is for somebody to resolve it for you. Yeah, someone's trying to tell you how to deal with your trauma, and, and, it's, and, and it's diminishing. And without that existential angst, mm-hmm. you're less likely to uh, journey through the dark stuff so that you can get to the other side. Mm-hmm. If somebody resolves it for us, we go, oh, I'll just stop here. And now we're going to be dealing with reactive um, responses to suffering, mm-hmm. which is we're going to deny it. We're going to, we're going to blame somebody else. We're just going to pretend like nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And you've met people like this. Oh and yeah. Th- it doesn't work. No, you can sometimes see that this has been carried. You know, you mm-hmm. can almost see in the way they move that they've got some kind of scar they carry that they have not it, been it's able a, to It's deal amazing with. how many times I've sat with somebody who's suffering <laughs> and they know I'm a pastor. And so they, they're afraid 
to say anything but like, but I know it's all going to be okay. I, I know I am. And, and how many times I've had to stop them and, and be like, you can throw your fist up right now. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, you need to. Oh, yeah. Because if you don't, I fear for where this will go. Crying out, using your voice in this way, is one of the essential marks of grief, the process of grief. Mm-hmm. And if you neglect the process of grief, we have plenty of psychological and scientific data for what's going to happen to you, right. and it won't be good. Lamentations got this one right. Yeah, and collectively too. I mean, we see that happening right now in yeah. the world, you know, with the black community, yeah. with people of color. This is what they're collectively doing because an interesting fact, I think, is, is that it isn't just individuals, but actually whole societies and cultures can be traumatized. Right, and right. There's some theory about the way the ancient Jewish people and modern Jewish people with the Holocaust have experienced that trauma and how it affects the writing that they do, including Lamentations. So I would say right now, this is an important conversation to have. And I'll speak to this particular circumstance quickly. Um, The the issue of rioting, Mm -hmm. okay? Protests in general, but rioting. And a a lot of people, and, and sure, Theoretically, you're you're probably correct to go. Rioting's not going to solve this. It Why seems are they rioting? not helpful, right? But. And 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 certainly, philosophically, we know that it's not. Right. And if we ask the people doing it, they'd probably yeah. No, no, I know. But there is something about the existential nature where I watch yes. it and I go, I'm not surprised. No, they're crying out. Exactly. Um, I the theologian uh, Dave Chappelle, who's if, if you know who Dave Chappelle is, you know that he's not a theologian, he's a comedian. Okay. <laughs> but I think that he has a lot to say. Um, he actually k- did a special in response to this where he just kept using this line like, the streets are speaking for us. Yeah. Now, whether or not you agree with how that's happening or if you think it's an issue or not, mm-hmm. you have to give credence to somebody experience suffering Yes. and they're responding by crying out. Right. That's a part of the process. You can't ignore yeah. that. And maybe you don't have any right to say, like we were talking about before, you don't tell someone else how to deal with their trauma. Well, you have to the, say, and you know... That's the narr- That's a narrator. Yeah, in, right. In the narrator is, is right. He starts out yeah. trying to kind of almost like saying, well, you know, you, you did this thing, you caused this thing. And then yep. gradually, like you said, puts down that mic and says, no, I join you in this. But, but how but, many people right now in trying to do the right thing are mm-hmm. acting like the narrator in chapter yeah. one mm-hmm. and trying to diminish the voice? Mm-hmm. And what you actually need to do if any healing is going to take place, which I think we would all say, yeah, we want healing to take place, you got to let the voice be yeah. heard. Mm-hmm. So if you're suffering, you have to use your voice. Right. And uh, if I'm ever sitting down with somebody who's suffering, that's the first thing I look for is where's their voice right now. And, you know, it's usually family members who try to diminish it. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes take it as my responsibility to go like, don't listen to them. You, you yell to me, vent to me then. Yeah. Um, so if you're suffering, how do you see your voice? Mm-hmm. If you're experiencing somebody else's suffering, are you diminishing their voice at all? And if so, stop. Right. Um, and culturally, that's difficult because how do, you, how do you interact with a societal voice? And I'm not saying that it's your responsibility to do that. Right. But you have a friend Okay, so like I look at John Torrance Mm -hmm. and I hear him just wailing to me about what's going on. And I go, here, take a mic. Yeah. Say it. Mm -hmm. You need that. Our society needs that. And the people who are like the narrators trying to shut the woman up in chapter Mm -hmm. one, if we allow us to hear the voice, 
will probably be changed too. And that's what yeah. we see happen with the narrators. You go into chapter two, is mm-hmm. the narrator goes, oh my gosh, I missed it. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Now, now what do we do? Yeah. And that's going to that's gonna show us what uh, practice number two is mm-hmm. um, with, with scene. So um, were there any questions from you all or anything anybody wanted to add to? <laughs> Bob said that's way better <laughs> advice than Job's wife gave him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything else from y'all? And if you have uh, lingering thoughts, feel free to bring them for next week, um, and we'll we'll dive into those things and we'll we'll make them part of the conversation. Um, but let's uh, kind of prepare ourselves for getting into the practice of voice and the practice of seeing and how that will give us a proper response to suffering. And then I'm, I'm really, my favorite part of this is what's going to be week three, which is finding God in lamentations. It's so good. I love it. I, I, I want to give you, I want to give you that now and I'm going to have to wait. So um, thank you all for joining us. I hope this was beneficial in some way. And, and I do think this is information, like go back and listen to it. Soak this in a little bit. Um, or after you've heard this, go back and read it and see if you can find some of these things happening. Um, and I really hope that we are a community where Lamentations has a part to play mm-hmm. um, because I, I, I think it's so, so important. So grace and peace be with all of you as you go. And I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation next week. We'll see you.